Carpenter's Way. Uh, if you're in the room, you're more than welcome to stand and worship with us. You don't have to, but you're more than welcome. Uh, uh, if you're joining us online, don't be a spectator this morning. Join in with us. Rejoice for we've 
the reading of God's word. But, there we go, but when the right time came, God sent his son, born of a woman, subject to the law. God sent him to buy freedom for us who were slaves to the law, so that he could adopt us as his very own children. And because we are his children, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, prompting us to call out, Abba, Father. Now you are no longer a slave, but God's own child. And since you are his child, God has made you his heir.
And God, I just ask, Lord, that as we sing through this song, help us to have that assurance. Help us to take that assurance and, and walk out of this building this, this morning. Blessed assurance, Jesus is mine. Oh, what a foretaste of glory divine, heir of salvation, purchase of God.
May be seated. We're going to dismiss the kids for GPS at this time through third grade. A couple announcements before we uh, want to jump into our text. We're going to be starting Second Peter this morning. So if you take your Bibles and you want to turn there, I'll join you in a second. Uh, if you've noticed in the welcome area, there is. Uh, we are in short-term mission, full-blown mode. We have a team going to Brazil this summer. Uh, we have we are working Robert Grimes, who is our pastor of missions with Jared Pig. Uh, we are working up another trip to uh, Brownsville, Texas. For those of you who'd like to go on a mission trip and not leave the states, uh, so that's in the works. You can talk to Robert if you're interested in that. Um, but the other group is a group to Guatemala, and that trip has turned out to be very expensive with the plane tickets and everything this year. Plane flight, if you haven't flown in a while, is ridiculously high, almost double what it's been in the past. So um, they are planning a fundraiser, and they have a table out in the welcome area. And if you are interested, it's going to be a great night of games and music and different things. So check that table out as you, uh, as you exit this building a little later. And uh, I also want to encourage you, we have a new website, Carpenter's Way does, uh, Jeff Bonin and... Uh, has been working on it. Justin White has been working on that for a long time, and we're really excited about that. It has all the information you could want. We're gonna, it's going to be possible to sign up for camps and mission trips and stuff on there. Lots of information, so we encourage you, as well as all of our missionaries are on there and information about them. So it is a very interactive site. It, it is beautiful to look at. Jeff did a phenomenal job, and Justin, on that. So uh, take a look at that. And uh, you'll, you can get more information on the Brownsville, uh, Texas trip as well. So I also want to encourage you again, a couple things, that uh, because uh, we've, we've, over COVID time, we've just made some changes, and one of those is our bulletin. Uh, we have our worship guide that is online, comes out every Friday. It's a worship guide, a digital worship guide, as well as our prayer guide. So I encourage you to look at that. If you are not getting those, if you don't get those emails, uh, as soon as service is over, there's a Carpenter's Way table out there where my dad and, and my Karen, they, they, they sit at that table. I was going to say they man that table, but that's offensive now. So they, they host the table. So make your way there. If you do not get that information, whether this is your first time or your 50th time, make sure you fill out. Uh, we'll want to get your email, and, uh, and we will make sure you get all that stuff. So a lot of our information is digitally, so please make sure that you go to that table after. One more thing that I want to highlight, I haven't in a while. If you have a prayer need, we have three ways that you can be prayed for. One is in your Bible study. We want you to be involved in, your, in a Bible study so you have a small church that you connect with and you pray with that prays for you. That's one way. The second way is you can let our office know and, and we will add it to the prayer guide if you want it that way. Or if you just want the staff to pray for you, we can do that. But the other way is more anonymous. Um, between these two doors, actually I think it's to the left of that door as you leave, there is a prayer wall. In front of that prayer wall is a table with three by five cards and pens. You can write an anonymous prayer on there and you just stick it on that wall. And as you walk by, just grab one. Those of you who are 
a prayer is just grab one as you walk by, or if you leave one and you're a Christian, take one. If you're not a believer, you can just leave one, and we'll, I promise you we'll pray for that. But if you are a child of God, leave one, take one, and be praying for each other, even if you don't know each other by name. And uh, that's a way that we take care of each other. So um, anyway, those are just some announcements. If you have any questions, you can email, text, uh, you can call the office, and we are uh, glad, or you can talk to us after. Go to that table. We just want to serve you, and in a room this size, it's just possible for everybody to know everybody else. So please be asking those questions. All right, you ready? Second Peter, here we go. It was in Warren Wearsby's commentary on Second Peter that he began by pointing out that if anybody should have understood the importance of remaining alert in the time of his living, in the midst of chaos, it should be the Apostle Peter. Uh, you know, and it's hard to remember this as we go on, I think sometimes even in the church we have a tendency to think that Peter became almost perfect after Pentecost, so Jesus ascends into heaven uh, 40 days after the resurrection or around that time, and then a few weeks later, Pentecost, the Holy Spirit comes on the church and they're inhabited, and we sort of think, wow, look at all the change, and much did change in Peter's life. But I want to remind you that toward the end of their ministry, Paul had to rebuke Peter in, in public for racist activity. These, this, these were very racist times. We think it's new to the United States of America. There is racism throughout the Scripture. Gentiles towards the Jews, Romans towards the Jews, Jews towards the Gentiles, Jews towards the Samaritans, Samaritans towards the Jews. Where you grew up, your genetic background, your history, your family of origin, those all affected how people saw you and how people interacted. The people treated each other different, different by their socioeconomic status, by their involvement spiritually, the religion they were a part of. So I just want to remind you that nothing is new under the sun. Nothing is new. Immorality isn't new. Uh, choosing to try to be legalistic isn't new. All of these things were happening. And Peter, of all the apostles, so much is run, uh, written about him. We know that he struggled with these things. And that's the same Peter that wrote 1 Peter and 2 Peter. I mean, he had a tendency in his early Jesus-following years uh, to feel overconfident in his understanding of the task. And he would often overlook his rabbi Jesus' teachings and, and, and actually rebuke him at times. Dr. Wearsby points out that Peter was known to rush ahead when he should have waited. He writes that he, should have, that, that he was sleeping when he should have remained awake, and that he spoke when he should have kept quiet. And you guys remember that about this guy. But having matured in many ways from the lessons of his youth, much like us, we find Peter, when he writes First and Second Peter, to be in Rome. It tells us at the end of the first letter, that we just finished a couple weeks ago, that Peter was actually in Babylon when he writes the first letter. That's part of Rome, but it was a major city. At the second letter writing, <clears throat> we believe, it is believed that Peter is in prison. Nero, young Nero, and he was about 15 or 16 when he took the throne. He took it over from his mother, and he was evil from day one. History tells us that Nero actually killed his own mother. He was a wicked, evil king. And he was now on the throne. And what was, what was kind of in the past, maybe verbal persecution with, with the once-in-a-while physical persecution of a follower of Jesus was now commonplace. And even the state had begun to enact actual... It, it, began, it became the law of the land to persecute followers of Jesus. And we believe that Peter was actually in prison at the time of writing the second letter. He was in prison... And he will not ever get out. 
after writing the second letter, and I'll, I'll get into the dates a little later, but we believe that a year after writing this, Peter will be hung on a cross, and history tells us, not the Scriptures, but history tells us that he will ask to be hung upside down so he wouldn't share exactly as his Lord had, had died. Having matured from his lessons of the youth, he writes 1 Peter to encourage uh, the believers to stay on message, to understand their task. He basically says how to have joy in difficult times. But the second letter, the second letter upon which we embark in today, 13 times, it's only three chapters, and 13 times he speaks of the necessity of knowing God. And he's not talking about a doctrinal, intellectual, or a theological understanding of God as we in the West often think, but he's talking about a personal, intimate uh, relationship with him, a give and take, a conversation that builds trust. The truth is, men and women, if we are going to be faithful, healthy, fruitful, and even joyful in difficult times that are here and that will be coming for followers of Christ, we are going to have to, you are going to have to know Jesus for yourself. There may have been a time, and maybe the past 60 years, and I don't need to explain why I think that, there's been a time of, of relative peace after World War II where the church began to get big um, without going into deep church history. There was a lot of theology that believed we were in the millennial kingdom, and so the practical application of that in much of evangelicalism were to build little kingdoms. The church became the kingdom of God, and they built, they built things like family centers and ministries. They wanted it to be all-encompassing, and they bought these huge facilities, and, and, and they started the, the conquest of bringing the people into the kingdom of God by bringing them in the church. And the mistake that was made is the church stopped discipling as its emphasis and actually started evangelizing, which is great, but then when do the Christians grow up? You see, the church was invented so that we would mature, so that we would grow up in the things of Christ. And when Satan gets us off that message and purely on evangelism, and I know it's weird to attribute that to Satan, remember, Satan just turns the screw a quarter for children of God. In the Garden of Eden, he hasn't changed. He said to Eve, did, Jesus, did God say you're going to die if you eat from the tree? You're not going to die. Actually, God knows that if you eat of the fruit in the middle of the garden, you will be like him, knowing good and evil, which was half true. The truth is, it says that when she ate Eve, and when she gave to her husband and he ate of that fruit, they immediately had their eyes opened and they were like God, knowing good and evil. Satan uses half-truth. And while evangelism is something, or actually, actually we're not called to evangelize, we're called to witness. Well, isn't it the same thing? Not really, because I tell the truth about who Jesus Christ is and what he's doing, whether people accept it or not. Evangelism, ha evangelism has the focus of convincing people or getting them to follow Jesus when our call is to witness to Jesus, to the truth. And there is a difference, and we can debate that a different time. But in order to do that with joy in a time where people don't love you or like you or affirm you, you've got to have a community. And that's why God invented the church. And so knowing what was coming, knowing what he was experiencing, believing that he is not going to live through this experience, Second Peter is Peter's swan song. It's the last thing he wants to leave as an apostle to the followers of Jesus. And in 2 Peter 1, 1 and 2, this is how he opens his letter. This letter is from Simon Peter, a slave and apostle of Jesus Christ. I am writing to you who share the same precious faith we have. I just, I just want to stop for a second and just say I love that adjective 
Because I think most of us, I believe as I look around this room even this morning and I see you, most of us got saved at a very young age. You may not have been surrendered to the Lord, but you got saved at an early age. And it's become such a part of our culture. It's become such a part of our life. We don't really realize how precious this faith in God is. It's precious. Where does the world go for hope? Alcohol, a personal rush, drugs, um, a political party. We have Jesus Christ as our hope. Our firm foundation that, it, that, that goes beyond living. <clears throat> the challenge of the world is YOLO, right? You only live once, so that's code for live it up. Are you kidding me? If this is all there is, we're in trouble. But it isn't all there is for us. It's a precious faith because it, it just propels us into hope and joy and peace. And, and it, <clears throat> sometimes I have a tendency to forget to remind you how precious our faith in God is. It is precious. Moving on in the text, it says, this faith was given to you because of the justice and fairness of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. May God give you more and more grace and peace as you grow in your knowledge of God and Jesus, our Lord. Let's, let's pray and ask God to speak to us. Father, <clears throat> in this room and on the internet, there's a lot of people listening to your word this morning. And Father, I have opinions and thoughts uh, that aren't necessarily your opinions and thoughts, so I ask that you would help me be disciplined this morning. And as we go through this letter, I pray that we would obsess over Jesus and knowing Him, and that as days get dark, those are going to happen. You promised them. And, and while we still vote, and while we still try to speak hope and blessing into this culture, the truth is, we know what's coming, so may we firmly plant our hope and our future and our wealth in you. In Jesus Christ's name we pray, amen. Peter begins, and I'm, I'm going to concentrate on these two first verses I just read this morning because there's so much in here that I think is, is so encouraging and so uh, focused, and it sets the tone for all of our study of Second Peter. But I want to begin with two very bold and meaningful self-introductions by Peter here. Peter, Peter proclaims two things about himself. The first thing he proclaims is that he is an apostle of Jesus Christ. He also says, though, that he's a slave as well. Now, before we get to slave, I want to talk about the one that not only you understand, but his followers understand. And I want to tell you <clears throat> that while we write a letter, Dear Mark, that's, a, that's kind of like a really quick thing that we do at the beginning of letters. None of the New Testament epistles, if you want to understand, every Remember, the Bible is not one book. It's 66 books, right? It's a volume, it's a library of books, of letters. Some are historical books, uh, some are poetic books, some are wisdom like Proverbs and Ecclesiastes, some are historical documents, some are letters exchanged by churches or from one apostle to a follower of Jesus. But these are the ones that church historians as well as theologians as well as the apostles picked for us to study. 66 of them. There were probably three to 4,000 other letters that the early church had in their hands. <clears throat> but there was very little di disagreement on which one should be in what we call the canon. These 66 books. Of these 66 books, we have the New Testament. The New Testament explains the new covenant in the blood, the, in the blood of Jesus Christ. The Old Testament tells us the old story. And Within the next few years, I'm looking forward to going back to the Old Testament and walking through. I think I want to do a series called The Old Story, and I want to start, 
I want to start at the Exodus, and I want to go all the way through until the intertestamental period, right before 400 years before Jesus comes, because I don't think most of us know it. I actually believe with what we've been learning the last few years, most of you can tell me the story from creation all the way through the Exodus. I just don't know if we understand what happens after the Exodus. What role do the minor prophets play? Why do we have the prophets? Why are these things written? And I'd like to explain it to you, because this is how you feed your family. I love that you come to church. You need to come to church as long as we're allowed to. But the day may come when this is no longer legal and you're going to need to feed your families. You men will be the pastors of your home. Single moms, you will be the shepherd of your children in a way you never have before. And my job, our job is to make sure that we load your gun so you can smell falsehood. When Peter begins his letter, when Paul begins their letters, you can find out what they want to say usually in the first few, few verses. For instance, the, first, the three epistles of John, that's not the gospel of John, but 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, you can tell immediately what his heart is, his emotion is, and his goal is just by the first 10 verses. In fact, 1st John says, I am writing these things so that you might fellowship with God the same way we did. John wanted his readers in Ephesus, a church he had once pastored, to not walk away from intimacy with God. And I would argue most of the New Testament letters are about that. They want us to know Jesus personally, not religiously, because that's the temptation that Satan gives us all the time, isn't it? Satan wants us just to be religious people. He wants us to assent to a moral code. He wants us to have a preacher. He wants us to like certain songs. Chad and I were talking this morning about that last song that Fanny Crosby wrote. This is my story. This is my song. I'll bet you if we interviewed you, most of you know that with your eyes closed. It it helps to have it on the screen. But most of you know that. But have you ever really thought about what Fanny Crosby blind and uh, Fanny Crosby was thinking as she wrote that? It's because we, we kind of attribute an emotion, which is nothing wrong with emotion, but we attribute a feeling to, to a good song. Oh, that's such a great song. I remember singing it as a child. That's not what makes it a great song. You sang happy birthday as a child. What makes it a great song is the truth in that. And Chad was telling me this morning, and forgive me for speaking for you, but I thought it was really powerful. So many of the songs that he said he wrote at first, before he really came to know Jesus from Scripture, many of the songs we sing as children, we don't think about And if we do, we just kind of hope they're right. I sure hope that's right when it is true. But you won't know it's right if you don't know God for yourself. And so as Peter begins this, and that's the theme of the book, you need to know God. I mean, no, 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 K-N-O-W, not N-O, but no, you need to know God. You need to know him for yourself because people like Mark deceive you. People like Mark get deceived. You need to know God for yourself. The world will deceive you. The world's going to tell you things that make your flesh feel good. I'm here to tell you that while I won't always make your flesh feel good, in eternity you will be glad you followed me. It is a worthy life. What are we going to live for? What are we going to die for? He introduces himself here, and it gives us a real sense of the letter by saying, I'm a slave and an apostle. And again, I want you to know that his readers knew he was an apostle. That wasn't an unfamiliar thing. Uh, You know he's an apostle. So you could ask, well, why would he identify himself as that? And I'll just make it simple. As I had already said, Nero came to power. These believers had known somebody or maybe somebody in their very own family who had probably been put in a coliseum and fed to a predatory animal. If not, they would have known somebody who knew somebody. You know, this was interesting, just an observation. Those of you who grew up in East Texas, which is most of you, we lived in Cleveland, Ohio before now, 
and actually the outskirts of Cleveland, about 40 minutes outside. And we would read in the newspaper about people dying all the time, car accidents and stuff. Man, when somebody dies here, you know them. And so I know them. Like, I'll get a call from somebody going, that's my cousin, or that's my, you know, whatever, that's my work partner's kid. It is so weird. This is how it was in this time. The believers were such a small group of people. They knew each other. They knew about each other. And they would say, well, this guy was in this church and he was just fed to the lions or, or this guy was abused or he's been imprisoned or his family has rejected him. They had to take care of each other. A lot of times when somebody would become a follower of Jesus, they would actually lose their job and their livelihood, even their wives, their husbands at times. And so they would be taken in by other believers, which is why Peter says, be hospitable to one another. This was, a, this was a radical way of life to follow this radical rabbi Jesus. And the Jews weren't embracing them, and the Gentiles were rejecting them, and I want to remind you why, and this will make sense to you. While the Roman thought was plural gods, and they didn't care what god you worshipped, it was the time of Socrates and Plato where you find your own truth. Do you remember when Pilate stood with Jesus and they were having that conversation, and Jesus said, talked about the truth, and Pilate looked at him and said, you know the truth? That's because Pilate was shocked. Nobody knew the truth back then. Maybe you're familiar with that. They would refer to it as your truth or my truth. Things haven't changed. My truth is this. That's code for, I don't really believe this is the truth, but you know, it's what I believe. So don't get in my face about it. That's very, that's very platonic. That's very old Roman. And the problem was that these followers of Jesus, they weren't called Christians yet. They were called what? Followers of what? Of the way. That's right. Not the cult that we had in America a few years ago, but the followers of the way. And you know why they were called the way. And that should give you a clue as to why uh, it was so offensive. Because people, the one doctrine they knew about these followers of Jesus is he called himself the way. So they weren't followers of Jesus, they were followers of the way. And that means the core of the message is, I'm the way. That was offensive. So you think you've got the answer to how to get to heaven? I don't have the answer, Jesus does. I'm a follower of Jesus. Oh, the way. Yes, I'm a follower of the way. And because of that, people hated them. They hated them. It was exclusive. Don't let people get you back on your heels. There is only one way to God. If you believe in Jesus, I believe in Jesus, I just don't think he was like that. Well, your problem is we're quoting Jesus when we quote John 14, 6. I am the way, the truth, and the life. Nobody comes to the Father but through me. Well, how do I know that verse is from Jesus' mouth? Okay, let's just assume that's misworded. But if you go on in the text, he says, I'm the gate. Nobody comes into the fold except through me. Well, you know, well, maybe he didn't mean that. Well, I am, he keeps going. There's all these I am statements. I'm the bread of life. I'm, the I am statements are simply, I am the way. And if you have any doubt as to whether or not that's what Jesus taught, just look at what they call the followers of Jesus, followers of the way. Does that all make sense? And that's why they hated them. That's why they hate you. Because everybody wants to do their own thing and be good with God, Right? Isn't that what everybody wants? I want to live life the way I want to. And basically, the problem people have with God is they're accountable to Him. They don't mind God being there. That's why people who grow up in church and walk away go, I love God. I'm spiritual. I'm just not a follower of Jesus. Okay. Everybody's spiritual because you have a spirit. The question is, 
Where are you finding hope? I'll work it out when I get there. No, you won't. Actually, you will, and that is not what you want. So that gives you some groundwork. So why the apostle, why does the name apostle fit that? Because you have freaked out readers, scared, genuinely worried readers, and Paul is saying, look, or Peter, sorry. Peter is saying to them, it doesn't matter, one of those guys. Peter says to them, while you are being persecuted for being followers of the way, I'm the messenger of the way. So in other words, you think you got it bad? I got it bad too. I'm not writing to you from some safe ivory tower. I'm writing to you from jail. I'm not going to survive this. And how do we know that Paul, how do we know, question, this is teaching, how do we know that Peter knew he was going to die? Anybody know? Jesus told him. I think some people said that. I, I just can't hear. I'm deaf. I'm 55. Um, you know, I just learned I'm 55. I thought I was 56. That's how old I am now. But, but, but they, uh, Jesus told him. Remember when they took a walk? And it says, and, 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 and Peter gets upset because he's like, well, what's going to happen to John? And Jesus says, if I want him to live, he'll live. But it tells us in the text that Jesus tells him how he's going to die. So Peter waits all these years, but now he's in jail. He knows how he's in prison. He knows how Christians die. He knows what's going on. So again, taking us back to the significance of this letter, it's his swan song. He not only knows that he's going to die, he knows how he's going to die. But it's the second title that I think is so awesome and I want to spend some time on. The Greek word for slave or servant, and most of your, new, uh, most of your modern translations actually soften it by saying servant. The Greek word doulos and the, and the mojo of what, and, and remember that language isn't word to word. It's actually concept to concept. And while you can translate a Spanish word into English or an English word into Spanish, sometimes four English words mean one, is, is one Spanish word. For instance, okay, for, again, I'm going to use an example of Spanish because I know just enough to get arrested or slapped, okay? But growing up in San Diego... But let me give you an example because most of you know enough Spanish to get arrested or slapped. If we say in English, we're going now, we're going to go, that's we're going to go, that's three words. In Spanish, what do you say? Vamanos, that's one word. So, so just that alone should teach you how language works, right? You got three to one. Well, what is that word that means, you know, you, you understand what I'm saying. We want to translate word for word. We want one word, one Greek word, one Hebrew word, one Aramaic word to one English word. Well, it's not like that. Not only, sometimes it is, but not only is there a word, but the ending tells us what's going on, how long it's gone on, how often it's gone on, how many people it's going on. A lot of Greek, uh, a lot of Greek actually tells us who it's referring to doing the action. It gives us so much more information, and that's why modern translations often have different words. Not, not because somebody's trying to be devious or, or mistranslate it, but because that team thinks this is the best way to understand that word or that phrase. Again, if you want the best English version of the Bible, you need plural versions. You need multiple versions. And I can help you decide which, one I, which ones I use, but there isn't a great version. There's lots of great versions, unless you're going to learn Greek, Hebrew, and Aramaic. That's just how it is. Well, I don't like that. Get over yourself. It's not about you. It's just what it is, so we got to study. But this word doulos, which is, means slave. And, and yes, in the Scripture, it's often translated as servant. But in this idea, it is, it, it is, it is blunt. It is, you're, I'm, a, I'm a slave of God. Not only am I an apostle, which means sent one, right? Sent out from God for the message. 
but I'm, I'm even more than a sent one. I want you to know that I know what you're going through because I'm a sent one. It's worse than that. I'm a slave. I am a slave of Jesus Christ. This is, this is such a huge thing because with an evil Nero fully in charge of Rome, persecution of believers being state policy now. So let me give you some context. We believe that 1 Peter was written around 64 AD, okay? 64 years after zero, Jesus came on the scene uh, about one or two or three. I know that's weird. Um, so he died probably 33 AD. So this puts us about 31, 32 years after Jesus ascends into heaven, okay? In 30, uh, so this is written 64 AD. The second letter is written three years later, around 67 AD. The Catholic Church that has great history says that, Jesus, or that Peter was actually sacrificed or crucified in 68 AD. So it's one year, within a year of him writing the second letter. So as of that second writer, things, writing things are bad. It's his swan, swan song. The great Peter, in reality, wasn't the great Peter. He's just a follower of Jesus. And he's, he's writing to these people because he wants them to know he's not just a sent one. He's not just a missionary. He's actually God's doulos, his slave, his very property to do with as he pleases, even at the hand of Nero. And within a short period of time, God would be pleased to allow Peter to be killed. If you believe in the sovereignty of God, you believe that God chooses even the day of our death. And, and, and that's what he's proclaiming. That he has come to a point in his mature relationship with Christ where he has completely surrendered himself over feeling and desires. That he's completely willing to sacrifice his flesh, God over him, dead to self, alive to God's use, whatever that may mean. And that's what being God's doulos or his slave means. As I was thinking about that this week, I was wondering how I view my life. I mean, I'm, I'm a bred and raised evangelical Christian. I, I grew up, I mean, I, I grew up in the church. No, my parents' marriage didn't make it, but that's not the point. The truth was we were in church probably three or four times a week. That's what we were supposed to do. We didn't go to movies except when we were sneaking. I, that's not true. Uh, any movies, I, I was raised super legalistic. We were not allowed to watch Casper the Ghost because that glorified, in, in my church's thinking, that glorified ghosts in the supernatural. I, I know, I know. My, I, I remember being in a Sunday school class where they brought a deck of cards out and turned them over and told me what every one of those characters meant. I mean, talk about the church having nothing to do on our hands. The Joker was Jesus, the King. I mean, it was like, what? It's crazy. You know, the Queen of Hearts is... I think Mary, I, I don't, I, it's, it's so crazy, you guys, the things I was raised with. You know what you call two Baptists in a bar? No, they're not friends. Strangers. <laughs> the truth is that lots of stuff happened in our church that we were told not to do, but they were done out of town. You know what I'm saying? It was just, it was, it, we were more passionate for what we did and did not do than we were for Jesus Christ. But that doesn't carry us. And what's ridiculous is, that you start making up new rules that make no sense and nobody knows them. Remember that story, and I, I'm sorry I repeat these stories so much, but it's all I got. Uh, remember that time I, I told you that when Zach was a little boy, um, my brother was over, and he, I think he, he did something. He says, oh, uh, dang it or darn it or something, and Zach went, Uncle Steve, we don't say that word. And uh, 
Steve was like, you're right, Zach. I'm, that's my brother. I'm so sorry. I shouldn't use words like that. You're right, sweetie. Thank you for keeping me accountable. And about 30 seconds later, I said, hey, watch this. And I went, damn it. <laughs> Zach just kept playing. He never heard the word. I'm just telling you, man, when you're good at this, you're so, you, you stay away. I, he didn't even know the real stuff we were trying to avoid. We had become so legalistic. I remember hearing, I rem, as a kid, we weren't allowed to dance. I think Southern, you, you guys were allowed to dance, right? Really? What about square dances? Southern Baptists didn't square dance? But you could smoke, right? I mean, we couldn't smoke, dance, chew, and if we knew somebody who did, we had to, you know, evangelize them first. But, but you, you, get what, you get what I'm saying, though, right? It kind of gets off. You become religious, and you become so good at being Christian, you forget Jesus Christ. You're too busy being Christian than to spend time with Jesus. And, and, and he, in, in this letter, oh, it's so good because he's like, I want you all... I gave myself to Jesus. I'm giving myself to him, my prejudices and everything. So even if I die today, and, and the truth is, I find that I've done that a lot in my life. And I do, what do I want? I don't even know I'm doing it. What do I, what is it my goal? What's my goal as a pastor? And I think it's a pretty good goal at times. I, I don't want to embarrass you. I want you to be proud of your church. I want you to be proud of your pastor. And I asked this week, am I more passionate for that than I am the truth? Yeah, I, don't, I, don't, I hope not. I don't think I represent that, but I think sometimes I'm more concerned about what you think than what Jesus thinks. What about you? Over the last two weeks, what, is your, what are you a doulos to? I remember my youth pastor, uh, Jerry, a uh, radical guy. I mean, I called him God's Marine. He was crazy as anything, but boy, did he love Jesus. Um, and I remember one time, he used to, or he used to ask all the time, everybody's somebody's fool. Whose fool are you? You can be a fool to your flesh. You can be a fool to the world. You can be, and, and that's what I thought about this week. And I ask you, if you look back at the last two weeks, what you posted, what you thought about, what made you mad, what you fought with your spouse about, what you fought with yourself about, whose fool are you? Whose slave are you? Your bosses, your churches, your religions, your moral code, or are you Jesus' slave? Because there is a difference. Wow. If I'm Jesus' slave, I push my flesh away. I run from adultery. I don't draw people into temptation. The truth is, I do that not so because that's what Christians do, but because my body belongs to God. Teenager, listen to me. When you don't do what the world does and they go, oh, you think you're better than us, you go, no. Tell them the truth. I want to do what you're doing, but I'm not my own. I have been bought with a price. Adults, I'm not saying don't drink. I'm saying don't overdrink. And when you're friends and you want to, when you're out hunting, whatever it is you do, and I'm making stuff up right now, why aren't you doing this with us? I know you used to. You think you're better than us? No. But I've come to realize I've been bought with a price. I don't play that. When you want to post on the internet something trashy or something inappropriate or something rude, and you know you have the right to do it, you have to ask yourself, does this represent God or me? That's what the struggle is, and it is so hard. It is so hard to choose God over self. Unless you're God's slave. And that's really, really, really where you're at. I think we've watered it down because we're so afraid of the history of the United States of America and the world. Ooh, don't use the word slave. That's exactly what he meant. I'm that guy that doesn't own himself anymore. So who owns you? Everybody's somebody's slave. And being a slave of yourself will lead you to depression. You will never measure up to your own standards. 
You know, depression is anger turned inward. There's more depression today in our country than has ever been in the history of our country. And you know why? Because people are disappointing their God, and that's themselves. Rush Limbaugh. Forgive me if you're liberal. I liked Rush. I thought he was hilarious. I know. Whatever you're thinking, just let me be, okay? The last year of his life when he had cancer, if you listen to him, and I, I really stopped listening to him quite a few years ago because he enraged me, and that's not a good place for a pastor to be. Um, but uh, last year of his life, he started saying something different. He said, you know, at the end of the day, all the political stuff won't matter. All that matters is what you did with Jesus Christ. And he said, I'm a man of faith. I put my faith in God, so I'm going to be fine. I mean, it was like, what, Rush, what? You know, we, I knew his brother was a strong believer, and I don't really know anything beyond that, but it was amazing to hear this guy. When you're dying, your political action committee doesn't matter. I know, we're Texans, and the last thing that Sam Houston said was, Texas, Martha, Texas. What he said was, taxes, Martha, they're taxing me to death. Just kidding. Just kidding. I, I know that's special. But listen, aren't legends wonderful? Maybe he did say that. Maybe he didn't. But the last thing on my deathbed is not going to be the status of the church. It's going to be me and God because that's what counts. And you got Peter. You, you know, if, if you understand the context of these books, they're so cool to read because you begin realizing why they're saying what they're saying. And if you want to know at the, at the end of this man's life what was on his heart, you want to know what this guy was thinking, this is your letter. And what he was thinking was this, 2 Peter 1b. I am writing. So he says, I'm an apostle. You know that. I'm the slave of Jesus Christ. I am writing to you who share the same precious faith we have. So now you know it's not to unbelievers. And we got to start with that. As we go through this letter, if you are not a follower of Jesus, if you're not his slave, then this book has no relevance to you. You can watch, you can listen, you can hear what I say, but you can't be offended at it because it's none of your business. If I come over this afternoon into your living room and tell you that I hate the color of your living room, you're going to be offended and you're going to probably not throw me out because I'm a pastor and we're Southerners and we're gracious. Now, if I start badmouthing your brother after you, that is a weird thing about y'all. You can badmouth your brother to me, but if I agree with you, don't you talk about my family like that. What's up with that? I've learned it. Now I just smile and go, oh, bless his heart. But it's true, right? If I come over to your house this afternoon and I say, I don't like the layout of your house, and by the way, I think your kid's room should be over here, and you should do this and that, at some point you're going to go, you have a lot of opinions about my life. Why don't you just stay in your lane, right? So if you're not a believer, stay in your lane. We don't expect you to understand wives submitting to their husbands, husbands loving their wives as Christ loves the church, slaves submitting to their masters. We don't expect that from you. I think sometimes we treat you like we expect you to, but we actually think, those of us who know Jesus think, this is, this is, this is as close to heaven as you're ever going to get. So my advice to you is, if you're not going to become a follower of Jesus, live it up, because it only gets worse from here. But if you're a child of God, if you're his slave, if you are his kid, why are you living for yourself? Romans 10 said, if you confess Jesus is Lord, he's Lord. Well, I don't like what he's doing with my world. To which I think God in his gentleness says, stay in your lane. It's not your world. Yes, it is. I was born here. Not your world. My world. Actually, not even mine. I've given it to Lucifer. We can argue that another time too. But I want to fix it. This is all going to be cast into the lake of fire, and I'm going to create a new heaven and a new earth that makes the Garden of Eden look like nothing. 
and you get to live there, but not yet. So you trust me. You be my slaves, even if it causes your death, and I'll take care of you. Wow. But to do that, you've got to start by remembering how precious this thing we have is. This is not just a way of life. It's hope. And again, I think, and I don't want to say it's a disadvantage. Um, I, I've told you this, you guys, and I've got time so I can, I can meander a little bit. But I've told you before, I look back to, when did you get saved, Mark? I was about five or six years old. I remember that old orange love seat, Dad, and you prayed with me the sinner's prayer. But I'll be honest with you, I really didn't get saved that day. That was day number 542,648. Because every time I went to church, I heard about hell and I didn't want to go there. Are you following me? So I was always like, don't let me go to hell. Forgive me for my sin. Forgive me for my sin. And then I saw the Left Behind series, and I said, forgive me for my sin. He's coming! <laughs> it's, it's just, I grew up, so I, I picked that date, and many of you are the same way. You didn't want to go to hell, so you got saved, which is okay. The fear of the Lord's the beginning of wisdom. But the problem is we never grew into intimacy with God. And I think that's what God is teaching us right now. I think He's showing us how intimate He wants this to be, that we have a task that we can have a joyous life even in the midst of difficulty and rejection and persecution. We can have a great life knowing that what's coming is going to be phenomenal. Why? Because we have this precious faith. This faith was given to you because of the justice and fairness of Jesus Christ, our God and Savior. Wow. This faith was given to me as a gift. Now, that's the New Living Translation, which I use most of the time, but I love the Holman Christian Standard version of this. Put it on the screen for me, would you? To those who have obtained a faith of equal privilege with ours through the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Wow. So let me, let me, give, you, let me give you some cool history on this. So during this time, Gnosticism, I'll explain it in a second, was growing really fast. So along with my truth, your truth, those who were even followers of Jesus or claimed to be followers of the rabbi Jesus would begin saying that if you want a deeply spiritual experience, you've got to become like us. And then they set up legalisms. So Gnostics were the one who first set up the hierarchy of the church. In other words, you have a priest who has special knowledge, special insight, and they're the ones you follow. And then you have the spiritual peasants who kind of just follow these priests along. Sound like any religions you know? I mean, I'd like to have one of those crazy hats too, and I'm not talking about the Catholic Church alone. But the truth is, there's a lot of us that like to dress a certain way because, well, actually, Benny Hinn talked about it. Benny Hinn said the reason he designs his own clothes is people know who he is. Why do we need to know who you are? I thought this was about Jesus. But I would argue it happens all over the place. There are spiritual haves and spiritual have-nots, and you've bought into it. So have I. Um... We think of, uh, do I have time for the joke? There's an old joke. There's an old joke that says that uh, in North Carolina, uh, a guy's driving a limo. Have you guys heard this joke? He drives a limo and he, 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 gets, um, he gets pulled over and the cop runs out and asks for the license and sees the guy and runs back to his car and he says, hey, I need to talk to the sergeant. The sergeant says, what's going on? He says, I, I have a... You know, I have a very famous person here. I, I don't know if I should give a ticket to. He said, well, um, we don't do that here in North Carolina. You sound like L.A. We're, we give tickets to everybody because I, I don't know if you know what you're asking. And he said, well, who is in the vehicle? And he says, I don't know, but Billy Graham's driving it. Um, <laughs> the, the, thing, the thing is, we, <laughs> we, we, think, we think 
and I know you don't say this maybe, but we do think, man, Billy Graham, when he died, we had such a welcome in heaven. You know, when Stephen was killed, the Lord stood, wow. And, and what we also said, don't say and we're thinking is, I'm just hoping to get in there, you know. <laughs> I'll just be like, I don't need the crown. I'm just glad to see somebody else get one. I just want to be in there. Look what he says here. To those who have obtained a faith of, what's that word? Equal privilege. With ours. Who's ours? The apostles. Through the righteousness of God and our and Savior Jesus Christ. Equal privilege. Equal standing equal inheritance. It's so cool because this faith, this non-religious thing that we follow, this is equal. It doesn't matter if you're a woman. Please laugh because I feel alone right now. I'm just kidding. You understand that women were not... That's why Jesus' first proclaimer of the gospel is so radical. Jesus' view on women, the Mary Magdalene, it wasn't just a woman. It was a woman who was demon-possessed. He picked this woman to proclaim the risen Lord. Jesus was constantly saying, equal, equal, equal. And I know, well, the church puts women. The church puts everybody when it takes its eyes off of Jesus in its place. There's no such thing as worship leaders in heaven. We are all worshipers. There, there aren't, man, you know where I'm going with this. Equal. Radical equality. The church should be a place of radical equality, regardless of color of skin or socioeconomic status or where you live. The church should be radically equal. And that's what he's talking about. Not social justice, theological justice. I want to be careful. I'm not talking about America. I'm not talking about the world. I'm talking about heaven. God's value system where every tongue and every nation will bow the knee to him and be called sons and daughters of God. It's not so that it fixes the wrongs on earth. It's just because that's how it's supposed to be. We keep writing God's awesomeness into human fallenness, and I'm just telling you, it's already been fixed. It's called the church. Now act like it. But I don't like people who wear their pants around their ankles. Well, you didn't die for them, so who cares what you think about them? It's Jesus who did. And you should stop evaluating your, your God's value system based upon your preconceived ideas. It's His value system that matters. And that's why to a group of people that are even being told, you don't really know. We are the knowledgeable ones. Peter starts by saying, you who have obtained a faith of equal privilege because of what Jesus, our God, and our Savior Jesus Christ has done. It's His righteousness. There is a song we sing, and I, I just... I'm just beginning to like it. Uh, you're going to, Chad, maybe you can help me, or Julie. But it says, um, the only thing that protects me is, is my righteousness. Remember, uh, I'm killing it. Uh, the one thing, I'm not going to sing it. So, but, but it says it, and it, it rubs me wrong every time. Because I keep thinking, and I actually said, talked to Julie and Chad at different times about it. And I was like, man, I just, I just wish we could change that word. And I, I don't know, I don't think Chad wrote it. But it's, it's, it's my righteousness. I'm like, I have no righteousness before God. And I think both of them at one time or another, this was years ago we talked about it, said, no, God gave you his righteousness. And I'm like, ah, oh, my theology's wrong. It is my righteousness because that was his gift to me. Do you know that you stand before him pure and holy right now? Right now. It doesn't matter if you looked at porn last night or overdrank. If you are the child of God, you have confessed your sin. He is faithful and just to cleanse us from 
all in righteousness. It's been paid for, man. It's been paid for. And, well, then why shouldn't I just live any way I want? That's a great, that, that is a great uh, recipe for self-destruction and emptiness. Do you want to know who the most miserable people are in this country? Christians who are living in their flesh. They hate themselves. Struggling with depression. Why? Because you're a dichotomy. Big word for a guy like me. The Holy Spirit who lives within you is going, we got this. And your flesh is going, I sure do. And they're doing two separate things and he's banging on the inside of your heart. Now, if you are claiming to be a child of God and you have no shame and guilt over your decisions and you're living in a state of sin, you better run back to the Savior. But this is saying that we are of equal privilege. I don't have any special... You know, when we get to heaven, just watch. Y'all are getting crowns and I'm going to be like... You guys get gold streets. I'm going to have kind of... I don't know. I think it's going to be kind of a dirt horse poop kind of thing. I'm still glad to get there. But the truth is, it's not how you think. And if you have any questions about that, what, look what God's allowing us to see over the past three or four years with religious leaders. I know, it's very sad, but it's also eye-opening. Would you not agree? And I'm not just talking about hucksters like whatever. I'm talking about our people like Ravi. That breaks my heart. Until I step back and go, don't be Ravi. Be like Jesus. You need to raise your eyes. Keep your eyes on me, Mark. And brothers and sisters, you keep your eyes on Jesus. I think it's a little safer to trust the elders of your church because you know us. You know when we're stupid. But you just keep your eyes on Jesus and you're going to do fine. When I came to Carpenter's Way, there was a member of staff who said after he decided that he liked me three years later, he said, man, I, I just want you to know that I'm going I'm to support you. And I remember, I remember how scary that was to me. And we've talked through the years. I don't ever want you to support me. I want you to walk with Jesus. And I'm going to walk with Jesus. And God willing, we'll end up on the same lily pad. Do, do you know what I mean? This, this isn't a team sport. This is not enemies against enemies. This isn't about helping people win. You walk with God and you treat people as God wants you to treat people. And I'll do the same and we'll stand together if we do that. On the other hand, if there's half this church that's Jeff Bonin's fans and half this church that's Mark Wilkie's fans, and I'm just making this up. I'm not even going to use Adam because he's just coward. Um, <laughs> then, then I pray that this... I pray, <laughs> I'm just teasing, dude. I'm, I kid him about this all the time, Amber. Amber's amazing. We actually hired her but he keeps showing up in her office. <laughs> the, the truth is, you guys, um, I pray that God shuts us down if we ever become about ourselves. I really do. I, I don't know where I'm going to work, but you, you understand. I really, really want to serve the Lord, and I know you do too. So pray to that end. This is not a church organization. This is a family whose father is God. Um. 2 Corinthians 5.21, and then I want to read you a story that most of you have heard me read before, but it just fits. For God made Christ who had never sinned to be the offering for your sin so that you could be made with, right with God through Christ Jesus. It's all Him. There was a certain professor of religion named Dr. Christensen. He was a studious man who taught the small uh, liberal arts once Christian college in the western part of the United States. He taught the required survey course in the school that was still required. It was a, a Christianity. 
Every student was required to take this course his or her freshman year, regardless of his or her major or whether they were even a believer. Although Dr. Christensen tried hard to communicate the essence of the gospel in his class, he found that most of his students looked up, uh, looked upon the course as nothing more than required drudgery. And despite his best efforts, most students refused to even take Christianity seriously. This particular year, Dr. Christensen had had a special student by the name of Steve. Steve was only a freshman, but was studying with the intent of going into seminary for ministry. He was popular, well-liked, and was an imposing physical specimen. He was now the starting center on the school football team and was the best student in the professor's class. One day, Dr. Christensen asked Steve to stay after class so that he could talk with him. How many push-ups can you do? You guys remember me telling the story before? For those of you who haven't heard it, be prepared. Steve said, I can do about 200. I do about 200 every night. 200? That's pretty good, Steve, Dr. Christensen said. Do you think you could do 300 if I needed you to? He replied, I I don't know. I've never done 300 in this setting. But do you think you can, Dr. Christensen added. Well, I I can sure try, said Steve. Can you do 300 in sets of 10? You see, I have a class project in mind, and I need you to do about 300 push-ups in sets of 10 for this project to work. Can you do it? I need you to tell me you can do it, said the professor. Steve said, well, I I think, yeah, yeah, I, I can do it. So Dr. Christensen said, good, I need you to do this on Friday, and let me explain what I have in mind. And so Friday came, and Steve got to class early, and he sat in the front of the room. When the class started, the professor pulled out a big box of donuts. No, these weren't your normal kind of donuts. They were the extra fancy big kind with cream centers and frosting swirls, things that everybody wanted, and he knew everybody would desire. So the class was pretty excited when they sat down that Friday They were going to get an early start on the weekend with a party that Dr. Christensen had just put before them. Dr. Christensen went to the first girl in the front row, and she said, Cynthia, do you want to have one of these donuts? She said, yeah, I do. Dr. Christensen then turned to Steve, and he said, Steve, would you please do 10 push-ups so Cynthia can have a donut? Well, sure. Steve jumped up, uh, jumped down from his desk to do a quick 10. Then Steve Steve again sat in his desk. Dr. Christensen put a donut on Cynthia's desk. Dr. Christensen then went to Joe, the next person, and he asked, Joe, do you want a donut? Joe said, yeah. Dr. Christensen asked, Steve, would you please do 10 push-ups so Joe can have a donut? Steve did 10 push-ups. Joe got a donut. And so it went. Down the first aisle, Steve did 10 push-ups for every person before they got their donut. He was now going down the second aisle, and Dr. Christensen came to Scott. Scott was on the basketball team, and was in pretty good physical condition, actually just as good as Steve. He was popular and never lacking for female companionship either. When the professor asked, Scott, do you want a donut? His reply was, well, yeah, but I can do my own push-ups. Dr. Christensen said, no, Steve must do them for you. Then Scott said, well, I don't want a donut then. Dr. Christensen shrugged and turned to Steve and said, Steve, would you please do 10 push-ups so Scott doesn't have to have the donut that I'd like to buy for him? With the perfect obedience, Steve started to do 10 push-ups. Scott said, hey, I said I didn't want a donut. Dr. Christensen said, look, this is my classroom, my class, my desks, my donuts. You don't want it? Just leave it on the desk. And he put a donut on his desk. Now by that time, Steve had begun to slow down a little bit. He just stayed on the floor between the sets because it took too much effort to be getting up and down. You could start to see a little perspiration coming out uh, around his brow as well. Dr. Christensen started down the third row. Now, the students were beginning to get a little angry with the doctor, and uh, and he asked Jenny, Jenny, do you want a donut? Sternly, she said, no, I don't. 
Then Dr. Christensen looked at Steve and said, Steve, would you do 10 more push-ups so Jenny can have a donut that she really doesn't want? Steve did 10. Jenny rejected the paid-for donut. By now, a growing sense of uneasiness filled the room. The students were beginning to say no, and there were all these uneaten donuts on desks in front of students. Steve had also had to really put forth some extra effort to get these push-ups done for each donut. There, uh, they, there began to be a small pool of sweat on the floor beneath his face, his arms, his brow, and he was beginning to get red because of the physical effort involved. Dr. Christensen came to Robert, who was the most vocal unbeliever in the class, to watch, uh, to watch Steve do each push-up to make sure that he did all full 10 push-ups. He asked Roger to come, Robert to come forward and watch closely. So Robert went over where Steve was so he could count the set and watch and make sure he was doing them properly. Dr. Christensen started down the fourth row now. During his class, however, some students from other classes had wandered in and sat down on the radiators that ran down the sides of the room. When the professor realized this, he did a quick count and saw that there were now 34 students in the room. He started to worry about whether or not Steve would be able to make it. Dr. Christensen went on to the next person and the next and the next. Near the end of that row, Steve was really having a rough time. He was taking a lot more time to complete each set of 10. Steve asked Dr. Christensen, do I have to make my nose touch down on each one? Dr. Christensen thought for a moment, and he looked at Steve, and he said, well, son, they are your push-ups. You're in charge now. You could actually do them any way they want, or you could stop buying donuts for people. And Dr. Christensen went on. It was a few moments later, Jason, who was a recent transfer student, came into the room and was, uh, came, in, uh, came to the room and was about to come in when all the students yelled in one voice, don't come in, stay out. <laughs> A warm greeting, I might add. <laughs> Jason didn't know what was going on. But Steve picked up his head and he said, no, no, let him come in. Professor Christensen said, you realize that if Jason comes in, you'll have to do 10 more push-ups for him. Steve said, yeah, let him come in. Give him a donut right now. Dr. Christensen said, okay, Steve, I'll let you get Jason's out of the way right now. Jason, do you want a donut? He was now new to the room and hardly knowing what's going on. He said, yeah, give me a donut. And he looked back at Steve and said, Steve, will you do 10 push-ups so Jason can have a donut? Steve did 10 push-ups very slowly and with great effort. Jason, bewildered, was handed a donut and sat down. Dr. Christensen finished the fourth row and then started on those visitors seated by the heaters. Steve's arms were now shaking in each push-up in a struggle to lift himself against the force of gravity. By this time, sweat was profusely dropping off his face, and there was no sound except for his heavy breathing. There was not a dry eye in the room. Not even the most skeptic student could keep from crying. The very last two students in the room were two young women, both cheerleaders and very popular. Dr. Christian went to Linda, the second to the last, and asked Linda, do you want a donut? And she said very sadly, no, thank you, sir. Professor Christensen quietly asked Steve, would you do 10 push-ups so that Linda can have a donut she doesn't want? Grunting from the effort, Steve did 10 very slow push-ups for Linda. Then Dr. Christensen turned to the last girl, Susan. Susan, do you want a donut? Susan, with tears flowing down her face, began to cry, Dr. Christensen, why can't I help him? And now Dr. Christensen had tears running down his own face, and he said, no, Steve has to do this alone. I've given him a task, and he's in charge of seeing that everyone has an opportunity for a donut, whether they want it or not. You see, when I decided to have a party this last day of class, I looked in my grade book, and Steve here was the only student with a perfect grade. 
Everyone else had failed a test, skipped class, or offered me inferior work. Steve told me that in football practice, when a player messes up, he must do push-ups. And I told Steve that none of you could come to my party unless he paid the price by doing your push-ups. He and I made a deal for your sakes. Steve, would you please do 10 push-ups so Susan can have a donut? As Steve very slowly finished his last push-up, with an understanding that he had accomplished all that was required of him, having done 350 push-ups, his arms buckled beneath him and he fell to the floor. Dr. Christensen turned to the room and said, so it was that our Savior Jesus Christ, on the cross, pled to the Father, into thy hands I commit my spirit. With the understanding that he had done everything that was required of him, he yielded up his life. And like some of those in this room, many of us leave that gift on the desk uneaten, disrespected. Too soon as students helped Steve up off the floor and to his seat, physically exhausted but wearing a thin smile. Well done, good and faithful servant, said the professor, adding, not all sermons are preached in words. Turning to his class, the professor said, my wish is that you might understand and fully comprehend all the riches, the precious nature of the grace and mercy that have been given to you through the sacrifice of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. He spared not only his begotten son, but gave up all he had for us, for the whole church now and forever. Whether we choose to accept his gift or not, the price has been paid. That is a silly illustration, but beautiful expression of this precious gift we've been given. And look, I don't, I don't know how we overcome our blasé thinking about it, I'm with you. This has been such a part of my whole life. But when I read a story like that, I'm reminded of how that adjective precious fits what we have together. Peter tells us in 2 Peter 1.1 that you have attained a faith of equal privilege with the apostles through the righteousness of God and Savior Jesus Christ. And he prays for them and for us in verse 2 before he gets into his message for us. May God give you more and more grace and peace as you, pay attention, grow in your knowledge of God and Jesus our Lord. It's not found in us getting together and talking politics. It's not found in us dogging the world for being the world. It's not found in us working harder. It is found as we grow in knowledge of God of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And that's what 2 Peter's about. And i got to tell you something. I know I'm young, okay, so just bear with what I'm going to say because I think you'll understand. But I'm a forward-looking guy. I'm going to be 56 this year, my wife tells me. The truth is, though, you guys, I'm rounding second or third in my ministry. I've got maybe 25 years left. That'll put me right around 80. And I look at my dad, who's 82, and he could never do what I do at his age. <laughs> I'm just kidding. I can only say that because he's my, like my hero. He's just so strong. The, the truth is, I'll probably be able to do this until I'm 75 or 80 or until I stroke out or whatever. I, I don't want to retire, but you understand what I'm saying? And I got to tell you, as I thought and prayed about this this week, I want you to know Jesus is all I got to give you anymore. I don't care about the politics thing. I mean, I care, I vote, but I, that's not what we're going to talk about. We're not going to talk about the Baptist faith. We're not going to study the Baptist faith and message, but from this pulpit, we're going to get to know God together Amen. and His Son, Jesus Christ. And that's all we're going to talk about. We're not going to talk about CRT. We're not going to talk about slavery. We're going to talk about Jesus. 
whether you're red and yellow, black and white, rich or poor, gay or straight, we're going to talk about Jesus. We're going to grow in our knowledge of Him so that in this life, as it gets darker, and I do believe the days will get darker, as the return of the Lord draws near, maybe in our lifetime, we're going to find our hope in Him. That's my prayer for my ministry, and that's my prayer for you. Never, ever look away from Jesus. Let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you for your word. And I thank you for Peter that was looking death in the face when he wrote these things. May we never, ever, ever look away from you again. Not to legalism, not to morality, not to politics. May the world envy our hope and in turn want to know the the hope giver. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray, amen. As we wrap up our time here, I want to remind you that over in this corner, we have communion elements. If you'd like to spend some time talking to the Lord alone, God bless you guys. Enjoy your Sunday. Bible study will start in 10 minutes.